you've been with us here in these past few weeks, you know that we have been speaking about some very strange things, haven't we? We began 2021 speaking about this strange king that we serve, Christ Jesus. After that, we spoke about this strange news that we have been given. Last week, what we saw was a strange response to fear and to terror. And this morning, what we will experience and what we will encounter is a strange response to suffering. I so much enjoyed our prayer and song service one month ago in the book of Job. And yet I knew that as we prayed out of the book of Job, that there would be so many more thoughts and observations that I would, would want to get to. And so that is what I want to do this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like to come to the book of Job for much of this morning's message. I so much love how Job begins. Where in the prologue, you can almost imagine this man named Job. He's got this very large field and a very large property of a very large estate that he is over. He has a beverage in his hand and he's just sipping and he's just savoring everything that he sees. He closes his eyes as the afternoon breeze brushes up against his face. And he just looks at all the stuff that he has. And he thinks to himself, life is just so good. See, Job has seven sons and three daughters. He's got 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500, I mean, you just name it, he's got it. He's got oxen and donkeys. Well, that doesn't really mean a lot to us, I, I understand, but maybe this would maybe put it in perspective for us. Or we just imagine some CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And this guy is Ivy League educated. He lives in this huge house overlooking Central Park. He's got a summer home in Venice that he goes to occasionally. He's got a winter house right on the ocean in Miami Beach. He's got two Bentleys, a Porsche, and he's got a private jet. And yet the most wonderful thing of all that Job possesses, though, we are told in the very first verse that, that he is a blameless man fearing God and who is resisting the temptation that came his way. And so that is one component of, um, of the prologue of Job, but, but here's the other half of the prologue. We're also in chapter 1, what we see is a captivating thought where we find God and Satan having, having some kind of a, a summit somewhere. Now, the place is not exactly given to us. It's undisclosed. I mean, is it heaven? Is it somewhere else? We don't know. And yet it is among the most mysterious imagery that we find anywhere in the Word of God. Well, in chapter 1 and in verse 6, here is what is happening where it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
And Satan, the accuser, Hasatan, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From, go from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down upon it. Now in that last part of Satan is describing his activity upon the face of the earth. In the original Hebrew language, what, what he's literally saying is the word for a whip, for a scourge, or for oars that are lashing waters in the sea. I mean, that is how he describes his activity on the earth. I am striking the earth. I am scourging the earth. I am lashing the lives of people upon the face of this earth. And I mean, how consistent is this with what else we are given about him in the word of God? Or what we know about the evil one, about the accuser, about Satan, the evil one, is that he is just relentlessly moving to and fro upon the scenes of this earth. Be sober, Simon Peter writes later on in his life, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil stalks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that is exactly what he is describing and identifying his, his, um, his purpose in life as here. And yet we also notice verse 8, though, where now God speaks. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, and who turns away from evil. And I mean, you can just hear the love that God has for his believer in this passage, can't you? You can just sense how much confidence that he has in his son Job. And yet then in verses 9 through 11, 9, 11, 9, 1, 1, Satan does what Satan always has done and what he always will do. He begins formulating accusations against God's, his believers. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so he's accusing Job, and he's saying, Yeah, but God, the only reason why he even acknowledges you is because he's a millionaire. He only says that he loves you because you like to spoil him and to dote on him. He accuses Job. I mean, he's just so materialistic. I mean, that is what he loves, God. Job does not love you. Job loves the stuff that has come from your hands. And as I read this yet again this morning, and as I really stop and I consider it right now, I mean, it just makes me really wonder. Is that what if this is not just one special instance that we read about? What if this isn't just some nice little Bible study that we're reading this morning? 
But what if this is more or less what happens just before tragedy and turmoil unfolds in our lives? Or after Satan has been patrolling through the scenes of our lives, looking for an opportunity, voicing his accusations against us before God day and night, and then all of a sudden now he's got the green light from somewhere where he can now strike us. And again, how consistent with, with what else we, we are given in the Word of God. I think about in the book of Zechariah, as we find Satan standing before God, accusing the high priest Joshua. Joshua is wearing all of these filthy garments that are representative of the sins of the land. And what is Satan doing there? He's got his finger in God's face and he's accusing Joshua as well as all the people. I think about just before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus is speaking to one of the apostles. And he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. Now what's very interesting about that word you and is that he's not just speaking to the Apostle Peter, but, it's, but rather in the Greek language, it is in a plural sense, meaning Satan has demanded to have all of the Apostles so that he might sift them like wheat. And as we know of everything that had happened in between that moment that Jesus speaks in the upper room to Peter, all the way up to the cross, these guys are being sifted like wheat by Satan. Or we could go to the book of Revelation where we find Satan there being described to us as the one who accuses us before God day and night, night and day. And again, I just wonder, is, is this what happens just before everything in our lives goes completely dark. Not that long ago, we were at a congregation where our elder and his wife were going away. And our elder's wife had thought that she was going on just another Christmas trip. Where she's just so happy as she looks out the window on their trip. She just closes her eyes and she can feel the afternoon breeze brushing up against her face and she just savors it. She thinks to herself, life is just so good right now. And yet she had no idea that her husband, our elder George, was, was just hours away from having a stroke. They come all the way home and he has a heart attack a few days later. And then less than a month later, George, he passes away. Now she's coping with a dead husband. And then all of a sudden her phone rings and she has a daughter who is now, she has a disease now. And it just seems like just one thing after another, completely from out of nowhere. And I mean, I just wonder if God and Satan have been having conversations in past years of, of our own individual lives. 
where God was like, but have you considered my servant Judy Steininger? Have you considered my daughter Felicia? She is like no other. She fears God and she resists what is evil. Have you considered my servant Walter? Have you considered my daughter Denise? She is a blameless child of God. And there is no doubt whatsoever, Satan, that, that they will still be trusting. They will still be believing in my name. They will still be singing my praises even as the dust and debris rises from the rubble that you cause in their lives. Well, as we get back to Job, though, God says, no, you can't kill him. But God, notice, God does say, though, in verse 12, but, but he as well as all that he has now is in your hands. And the red light flashes and now it's a green light. God pulls the goalie. The hedge of protection now is removed from his life. And I mean, now Job is exposed to the sinister destruction, to the nefarious imagination of a roaring lion who is seeking whom he may devour. And it's here where we are confronted with yet another thought. And I mean, it is something that we cannot deny. Is that God allows you and me to undergo fears and intense suffering. Where Satan wastes no time whatsoever. Where what we find is the destruction of Job's stuff. His family is destroyed. At last, we even see Job's health being destroyed. Where he's got boils from the very top of his head going down all the way to his feet. Best case scenario, he has severe case of leprosy. Where he's just sitting alone in the darkness, grieving in sackcloth and ash. He's scraping pus off his face with shards of broken glass. And he's crying aloud with these loud and very disturbing shrieks of absolute anguish. And notice in the text that Satan is using nature. He's using sickness and disease. And he's using other people as instruments of his striking in Job's life. And yet, let's notice especially, though, that as all of this chaos unfolds, all the while, God is observing this. God is overseeing this. God is supervising what is going on. And it just continues happening in Job's life. And the question that I want to ask us this morning is, can you trust a God like this? Will you love a God like this? Will you hope and submit and seek a God who allows his faithful ones to undergo suffering? I think there is such a misconception in the evangelical world, and we hear it all the time, that the God will not put more on you than you can handle. 
I mean, try, try saying that to Job. And yet, you know, I, I really believe that this is why so many people in the world will never bow their knee in this life to Jesus. Because it is our attitude so naturally as human beings that, that unless every single moment of our lives is like the beginning of Job, where Job is just looking at all that he has and he's got so much stuff and, and he just closes his eyes and he thinks life is just so good right now. Life is perfect. Life is a vacation. How unless that is what our whole entire lives are, then, then well, I, I'm just not going to believe in God because something hard happened in my life. And yet you and I know, though, that anybody who is destined to reach the promised land. Anybody who reaches it one day and remains faithful until the end will have undergone many and countless fiery tribulations in this life. You see, I think that we all know what the response to human suffering is that comes natural to us human beings. And it's two very unfortunate ones, I would say. Where what a lot of people do is they assign blame towards God. Where after Job has lost all of his stuff and his wealth and his health, his children and his dignity, what does his wife say? Job, you have been so faithful to this God of yours. And yet how is God treating you in, in response? You've been so faithful only for this God of yours to treat you like this? And so she says, do you still hold fast your integrity, Job? Just curse God and die. That word curse, I think a more accurate way of saying that is, is just renounce God. Say goodbye to him and just die. Well, I used to think that she was a bad person. I no longer think that she is a villain here necessarily. In her defense, I mean, she, she's making a very human response to human suffering. I just can't tell you how many people I've known who have been here. I can't tell you how many times I have been tempted to be like this woman. Where it is the easiest thing in the world to say, you know what, God, I, ah, I quit. It's been good, but this is just a deal breaker for me, so I'm out. And there are many versions of this in Scripture as well. It's where the Israelites got to many points where where. Were there not enough graves in the land of Egypt that we, we come all the way out into this promised land just to die in this wilderness? It would be better if we just went all the way back to Egypt and were slaves once again. Let's go. I think about our lives. I mean, have you ever been in a situation in your life that was so dark and so fierce and so excruciating? is you just look at the Christian life, perhaps, and you say, why am I still doing all of this? 
Why am I singing these songs? I don't even know what I'm singing. I don't even feel it. Why do I just keep giving and giving and giving when my life is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse? And so that is one reaction to suffering is assigning blame towards God. But the other one is when we look at other people who are going through it and we blame and we shame that individual who is suffering. And what the sentiment was in this ancient world is more or less much of the attitude now of the evangelical world still. Where if a person is very rich and they're happy and they've got a lot of things, well, that means that you know, God allows great things to happen to great people. But if you are sick, if you are poor, if you are going through tribulation in your life, then, then what this means is that terrible things happen to terrible sinners. And after that last summit that Satan has with, with God in chapter 2, we don't read about Satan anymore in this book. And yet then again, we do. Because we hear him in the words and in the attitude of his wife and of his dearest friends. I mean, his friends start so good at first. Where they sit with him in the darkness, praying with him, supporting him silently. That is what they need to be doing. But then notice, though, as time goes by, they, they start doing what a lot of people have this nasty habit of doing. Where they just begin assuming that he's guilty. Jumping to all kinds of conclusions that, aha, this is divine payback. He's got this one friend whose name is Eliphaz. And the conclusion he jumps to is, Job, obviously you have sinned. And so just confess your sin before God and get on with your life. He's got another friend, Bildad, and what he says is, well, what it was, I mean, clearly, is that, well, your children are very evil people, and that is why this is happening. Much later on in the book, he's, there is another guy, just this obnoxious know-it-all, whose name is Elihu, and this guy spends six chapters accusing and blaming and shaming Job, saying this is exactly why you've done this and you deserve to die, he says. And you know, once I was preaching out of Job, and I was, I was speaking about suffering, and I had a guy in the back row who was just hissing under his breath. I could hear him all the way up there at the front. He did not like what I was saying because... He was in bed with this church group that was among the um, a far-right branch of the charismatic movement. He eventually left our congregation for them. And what his attitude was, was the exact same attitude of Satan and of Job's friends. Is that, no, 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 all of this is happening to Job 
for the exact same reason why trouble comes upon people today is because Job was this horrible, terrible sinner. And I mean, it is just a habit to point the finger in other people's faces. When that is the very last thing that they need, where what the attitude still is in the world of today, that if, that if there is any sickness or any tragedy, well, that just means that you are a devil worshiper who is getting exactly what was coming to you. Now, he was not a perfect man, and yet he was a blameless man. Now, he does lament what is happening in his life. He does ask why, but he is the most upright man on the face of the earth. Job is not getting exactly what he deserved because of some horrific sin that he was harboring. And yet, what is happening here in Job's life is he is undergoing this sacred process of an e even greater transformation in his heart. As beautiful as his life is in the pattern of God, he's about to know God even more intimately than he ever has at any point in his life. No, Job does not curse or renounce God and die. But rather, what he exemplifies to us lastly this morning is a very alien response to suffering. Or after he has lost all of his stuff and his kids and his health and his wealth and his sanity and his dignity in the process, what is his response? His response is not cursing. And yet it is singing. It is worshiping God. Even though he doesn't even have the strength to sing with all of his heart. It isn't very loud, but you can still faintly hear it. Or his response is, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. It's the same response as we find Jeremiah making in the book of Lamentations as he has forgotten what peace feels like. So many of his friends and countrymen have just been slaughtered and butchered in the streets. Blood is all over the place. His people have been marched off into exile. And yet in the most tragic book in all of Scripture, what his response to his suffering is in song. Where he can barely muster any voice whatsoever, but, but he's singing with all of his soul. 
the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. That's a strange response to suffering. And, and amongst the greatest advice that my father ever gave me was, yes, have a Bible at all times near you, but, but also have a songbook too. And I can't tell you how many times where, where I felt so dejected, where I felt so crushed in this world, only to find a song and a melody that I needed. And it was a strange and a therapeutic and a beautiful response to that suffering. Near the end of his life, something else that the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you in order to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. In other words, the strange response of the church to suffering is not to consider it strange when we suffer. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed to you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are makarios. You are the most of all to be envied in this world. And that's because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. And yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but rather let him glorify God. Let him sing to God that he wears the name of Jesus Christ. Now these are Christians who are undergoing a fiery trial, it says. And isn't that exactly what Job is going through in his own life? Now, now, Job is not undergoing a Christian persecution, but fire is coming down, it says. There is burning, there is calamity in his life, there is loss and devastation. And we just marvel at what is going on in Job's life because we've got intruders coming and stealing his stuff. We've got fire consuming his family and his servants and his things. All ten of his children are killed, but he does not think it's strange that all of this is happening to him. Rather than why me, Job's attitude is why not me. Rather than blaming God what his attitude is, God, Satan, what took so long for these adversities to come into my life? 
And Jesus says on the Sermon on the Plain that, that when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you are sought out by other people in this world in nefarious ways, Jesus says, jump for joy. Or as Simon Peter also says in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, starting at verse 6, in this you rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And notice this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's been said that among the greatest perks of marrying into a, a wealthy family is you got a lot of spending money. You've got a lot of luxury surrounding you. You've got a huge mansion that you're living in. You've got a new car every 15 months. And yet, if you ask the first century church what the perks were to being in the family of Jesus... What their attitude was is that we get to suffer. We get to be insulted by people who don't get us. We get to be humiliated by other people. We get to lose our property. We get to lose our jobs. We get to be thrown into a prison. And maybe even if we're lucky enough, we will get to be beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We will see our kids fed to the lions. We will be lit on fire in the porticos of Nero's palace. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So as we close this morning, I just want to ask us. I mean, how in the world can we respond to tribulation and to pain with this strange first century type of response to it. So what I want to invite us to in the days ahead is, is number one, first of all, when we find another person perhaps in this church or in our family, wherever it might be, who is undergoing fiery tribulations in their life, do not act as judge, jury, and executioner in their life. Please, please don't do that is that we don't try to explain, well, here's why this is happening, or that we are speculating why this is happening, that we do none of that. Or rather, what we do is we sit next to that sister. We pick up the phone and we call that brother. We cry with them. We say, I don't know exactly how God is going to work all of this together, but I know that he will. And we are going to get through this thing together. And then lastly this morning, what I want to invite us to is this. Is that when we find this happening to us, whenever it is going to be, is that, be, is that before we find ourselves exploding in rage, or before we, we find ourselves despairing or giving up on God, Slow down and just like Job, enter into it. 
Understand, yes, Satan is at work in my life right now. And yet so is Jesus. Is that we believe what John writes in 1 John is greater is he who is in the world, or rather greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. Is that we believe the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 that I, I know and I believe that the sufferings of this present age are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed within us because we serve the one who works all things together for good to those who love him. So will you love a God like this? Will you hope and give your life to a God like this. Regardless of what your need is this morning. My brothers and sisters. Let us keep Christianity strange. And odd. And peculiar. By living with this attitude. And with this very strange and unusual response. To human suffering.